You are now listening to Plant Talk, a podcast brought to you by Canada's Manufacturing Magazine. It is presented by Plant Magazine, Canada's industry voice since 1942, for manufacturing owners, senior executives, administrative and managers who represent all links in the manufacturing decision-making chain. Tune in to hear conversations with industry experts on comprehensive topics that are of utmost importance to the manufacturing industry. Today, we are continuing our conversation with Richard Kunst, President and CEO, and Mariella Castano, Senior Vice President and COO of Kunst Solutions. Part 1 focused on the factory of the future trends, technologies, and automation. In Part 2, we look at data, customization, robots, and how to address challenges. Uh, how are businesses dealing with data overload to create business intelligence? Not well. Not, very not, not well. It's, it's, uh, I, I think people are, are collecting a lot of data and, and you know, we spend a lot of time working with organizations and, and they've run into this rut of unactionable information systems. So they're collecting reams and reams of data. They're, they're creating tons and tons of reports. And then you say, okay, what are you doing with this data to change the behavior of your, of your employees, to adjust your operations? And they basically look at us with a deer in the headlight look and say, well, we don't know, but look at all this data we've got. And I mean, you know, if you take a look at the automotive industry, I mean, with the amount of blockchain that they've done, you can put in a VIN number, you can drill down and virtually know the person that made the fastener that's holding your license plate bracket on and when that was actually, what time of day it was made, um, which is great to have that data, you know, should you have to do a recall. So then you can do the data mining. Yes, then you can go there. But on a day-to-day basis, I think people are overwhelmed with data and they're just showing off that, look at all this data I have, but they're not necessarily doing anything with it. Um, And then other organizations are using it to really profile uh, the consumer and target the consumer to the point where it's almost an invasion of privacy. So, you know, as we read within a lot of organizations, people are starting to push back and say, you know, big brother's watching me and I'm not liking it. I'm losing my identity, Uh, which is good and bad because as things get laser focused to some sort of action that a person took, they don't get a chance to explore other technologies unless they figure out how to break out of that bubble. So, but, you know, memory is cheap. So organizations are saying, I don't know what I'm going to do with the data, but, you know, let's collect it anyways. And then just because, and then maybe we'll figure out what we're going to do with it. And we have run across this many times where, you know, have you got data on this? Yeah, we've been collecting it for 10 years, but what's the cost of collecting and storing all that data just in case I might use it? So um, I, I don't think a lot of people have gone strategic on, you know, data collection and what are you going to do with the data that I'm collecting other than, wow, I'm being, I'm able to collect all this data. Uh, we work with a lot of companies that are doing machine monitoring. Great. They're collecting lots of data. And, and typically I'm always concerned about first hour, last hour in an org- in a manufacturing organization because it's showing me the ramp up of production or the ramp down at the end of the day. 
which really highlights the inefficiencies or lack of standardization. Uh, but when I go and talk to these people and say, you know, all this data that you're collecting, are you doing anything predictive? Like, uh, have you done a life test on, on, let's say, in a milling machine when the mill cutter is going to be at peak life or end of life? When should we remove it? When should we replace it? And people aren't using the data for that yet. They have the data. They're capable of doing it, but they haven't pursued that initiative. Basically, use still using that old attitude. If the machine's running, let it run until it stops, and then I'll fix it. Never enough resources is the answer that yep. we get. We don't have the, enough resources to deal with. We don't understand it, so you know we just keep the data just in case, and if we need them, we deal with it. So it's very different how you see the data mining and collection and how it's taken at the consumer phase uh, or interface, but what happens with the data behind the scenes are very different. And I, th I think it's also the timing of how data is used. I remember you know, several years ago working in, in a factory and we had a discussion with the president and uh, you know, my president said to me, why are we collecting scrap data? And I said, well, it, it's important that we know our yield and our process capability. And he kind of looked at me and he says, I think that's horse manure. He says, by the time we go back to the operator, it's three weeks from when the incident occurred. And there is nobody that can remember what they did three weeks ago. And he says, and if we take a look at all the investment, all the manpower that we've put into collecting that data, sorting that data, and ultimately giving it back to that employee, way later than they can go change behavior, uh, it's a waste. And you know our labor is very precious. I need them to focus on value add. So I'm going to accept that there is a scrap rate. I just want to know when it becomes abnormal. And I want to know instantaneously so we can instantaneously do a corrective action. So again, the, the, the denominator there is data, but how fast are we churning that data to give a feedback to adjust behavior either in our machines, our people, or our processes. In terms of machines and equipment, uh, using all that data to do uh, predictive maintenance is uh, very important. Very, very. But unfortunate, I don't think there are a lot of people that understand it. No. Uh, many organizations, and we need to think about what are the majority of the manufacturers that we're talking to. There is small, medium-sized manufacturers. They don't have the resources. They they don't have the time to hire very sophisticated individuals. They have people that have grown those businesses with them. They don't feel that it's right to let those people go, yet those people don't have the knowledge and the skills required to deal with that data for the benefit of the process itself. So it, it is a very, very wedging situation there where you can bring someone that is very smart, very fast, can look at the data, schema that, and take an action and deal with it right away. But that workforce is hard to find too. It is. Right? Because there are people that are very smart and understanding data, but they have no desire to work in a factory. So, you know, the people that have the desire to work in a factory, in some instances, they had very basic education, formal education, but lots of job, skill, and experience. So there is a gap in between. 
But it's interesting you bring up the topic of maintenance. And, and there's another part of the evolution that we've seen with the factory of the future. So, you know, we are big proponents of TPM. So initially it was total productive maintenance. And that acknowledged the operator's sense of complacency or sense of understanding of his machine. And so it was an operator self-check. But in essence, we still deem the operator to be dumb uh, and only capable of pushing a button. So then we introduced total productive maintenance where, okay, we're going to allow the operator to do some minor maintenance on the machine. So topping up the fluid levels, maybe changing the filters, minor, minor adjustments, but we still relied on that operator to tell us, uh, you know, this doesn't feel right. It doesn't sound right, which is a trigger for a deeper dive. Then we got into that whole preventative maintenance, which was algorithm data-based that, you know, based on my math, I think we should take this machine. Let's tear it down. Let's replace the belts. Let's replace some of the sensors. We, they may not need to be replaced, but our algorithm and our data tells us that there's a high probability that they could fail shortly. And what I'm getting, but you know, that preventative maintenance, even though data driven, sometimes was doing more damage to the equipment just by taking it apart and putting it back together. And so what we're seeing now through data uh, and, and, and artificial intelligence is really organizations moving forward more to reliability maintenance. So now we're seeing people you know, in uh, sewage treatment plants, water treatment plants, that they're armed with uh, a thermometer and they're measuring the, the bearings, heat uh, on a pump. And if it goes above a certain level, okay, you know, I think it's time to take that, that pump offline and do the rebuild. And sometimes some of these pumps are not being touched for, to, for, for centuries or years beyond when they should have been removed from production based on a data-driven preventative maintenance schedule. So, you know, they're finding less cost uh, on maintenance by going to that reliability uh, maintenance with, by looking at data, different data in a different lens. So I think it's, I think it's a very good topic that you brought up because ultimately it's all about uptime and managing my overhead costs. Now, what challenges are being faced by companies in terms of adoption and implementations, including people, processes, and operations? So, I, I, I think the, I think number one, uh, you know, we've alluded to before, is the culture speed of absorption of the emerging technologies. I think that's number one. Number two, I think the challenge is the uh, ability to adopt the technologies to give you a competitive edge still against a low cost country uh, competitor. Um, you know, when people are paying 50 cents or a dollar for an employee per day, and I have to spend $20,000 on putting in that technology, you know, there, there's a huge delta. It becomes very challenging for organizations to say, you know, I can justify the return on investment of, of that technology. Uh, I think the processes uh, you know, when you're looking with a low cost country strategy, people don't want to wait 16 to 26 weeks to get a container uh, of product that, that they've had to pay for that long ago. So the cost of ownership becomes huge. So they're looking for a local source strategy. Uh, but ultimately, I think people are going to be the big challenge. I mean, 
everybody that goes to school wants to you know go to university or college to get a higher education um you know i am a little bit concerned that you know we're seeing with our younger children today you know math is disappearing cursive writing skills is disappearing out of the school but those are the baselines for what technology is built on today but the children of today are used to growing up with iPads. They intuitively know how to navigate through that technology. Whereas, unfortunately, Mario, you and I are probably still hunting around, pecking and looking at different menus. And if we find the solution, we are elated because it's like we won the lottery. Uh, our children of today aren't there. So, but if we take that into the plant, we've got people like you that, that are rationalizing and justifying bringing in technology, and we think we're being leading edge, and our children are coming in and saying, that's kind of archaic and boring. Why are you not into the next level? So I think our younger generation is going to be pushing industry for the adaption and implementation of those technologies. So, but people ultimately are the, that is, it's either gonna be the, the accelerant or it's going to be the inhibitor and we can't forget the people technology is there i think that tapping to what you're saying um, people not only from the technical perspective are going to be the challenge is also from the cultural organizational perspective on things like compensation so organizations have set up their businesses and compensated leaders for making specific decisions and moves and when there is a, a selling like engineering developing a brand new technology a sophisticated technology pushing the envelope to take the business to the next level and then there is a set of executives that are sitting and saying oh well that's not going to work on my factory that means i need to you know spend so much in capex that means my bonus is going to get affected no thank you very much I'm not willing to make that happen. And, and we're seeing it. We're seeing it with some of our customers where the engineering team, they're, they're far and beyond to what operations is willing to do and operations is willing to deal with. So that internal conflict, I think that is something that people are overlooking. We have engineers that have had this very sophisticated technology on their desk for six years and operations is not willing to execute because the bonus structure or how the business works is not suitable to embrace that technology. Yeah, and I think, but building on that, let, let's just very quickly touch on um, the big disconnect you and I see all the time in factories. You know, you walk into a beautiful gleaming office, then you go to the back door where the money is actually being made, and it's a mess. It's archaic. Uh, not that there isn't the technology, but I think businesses have to acknowledge that they have hired they have hired professionals. I don't care if it's the person sweeping the floor, making the cardboard box, or running that sophisticated piece of machinery. It is a professional. They just have different walks in life. And as an organization, you have before you can recognize that professional, you have to give them a professional-looking work environment. You have to give them professional tools in order to get professional results. And there's still that disconnect of the engineer dreaming that perfect process, sitting in his air-conditioned office, while the poor schmuck is in the back, 
you know, not being acknowledged as a professional for what he is contributing to the final value proposition that that organization is delivering. And I think there are too many organizations that are disconnected that way, which is going to be a huge inhibitor to the factory of the future. Versus you go online, you look at YouTube, take a fly through a Mercedes plant, take a fly through the BMW plant. You can't tell the difference between the office and the factory because everybody is respected and treated as a professional. Well, to your point, I've been to the, the Honda manufacturing plant up in Alliston. Um, and I think the, the way they work is that every single employee at the plant dresses exactly the same. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, a plant worker or in management, everyone has the same uh, uniform, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And that's why it's uh, a parallel uh, mindset and parallel behavior. And, and then, then everyone is going towards the same direction. Everyone understands the objectives and drives uh, themselves the same way. So we need more of that. We need more where people are sync with the same objectives. Organizations tell you a lot of that, but they don't execute on that. You talk to the uh, C-suite on a boardroom and they're telling you all these nice things and then you talk to the guys on the floor and then they're telling you something different and you talk to the guys in engineering and it's another story. So yes, we need more parallelism between the different levels of the organization and more alignment because technology is only going to do so much. We still need these people that are executing to make it happen behind the scenes. But I, I want to go back to Mario's. Because, so Mario, it's cute. It's kind of cool you talk about the uniform because I lived in that environment. And when you think about Mindshare, at first I was opposed to having to wear the same uh, outfit every day, but I got over it real quick because now in the morning, I did not have to donate any of my mind share about what I was going to wear that day. I could immediately allocate my mind share on what was I going to do at work? How was I going to help my team members? And, you know, it goes back to, you know, when we were transitioning the lazy boy plants, uh, you know, merchandising came down and they basically put me in a chair, parked me in a corner. And they said, when you're done, we have to ensure that our employees are not going to know if they're walking into a factory or into a lazy boy gallery store simple simple requirement but you know as part of our conversion cost to create that professional environment for our employees was a significant percentage of our overall budget but i'm going to tell you i love going through the plants today how clean they are how quiet they are and you know once we gave the employees that environment it was amazing how they embraced it to sustain it, uh, you know, no longer was it pick up after yourself. They just did it on their own. They wanted to work in that clean, uh, very organized environment. So the the subliminal intrinsic uh, attributes that come with something as simple as let's all wear the same outfit uh, is 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 almost immeasurable. I want to touch up on something else uh, here, and it's the total cost of procurement. Because having the people, processes, and operation aligned requires the entire business is aligned. And we have seen it with our customers where the technology is available here, is available in Alaska, or is available in China. 
we're talking about commodities that have the same price wherever you go. But yet, again, because how business are structured, the decisions of automation, the decisions of simplification or advancement for the business are made by someone in a desk that is just looking at where the part is made the cheapest. No, the total cost of procuring this part. Yeah, so, and, and, and again, I think we're still seeing that big and large, uh, Mario, is that you know with with the one Japanese company we were with, uh, they really viewed their supply chain network as their hidden factory. That was part of their village, uh, and it was implied that you know if you're a remote village, your success depends on us being successful at the top end. And you know constantly we're walking into organizations that are leveraging a supplier's technology for them to be successful. And they constantly berate these suppliers. They beat them into the ground. They keep them in the dark about what's going on. Uh, and you know the supplier is constantly left guessing, trying to understand what it is that their customer wants. Instead of like being transparent with these guys and saying, hey, you know, the price is the price. Ultimately, we have to have a combined price that's going to provide value that the customer is willing to do. What can we do together? They spend more time in contract negotiations about, you know, if you screw up, here's the penalty, here's the fines, here's you're going to do. I mean, what kind of relationship does that really provide? It's not a proactive relationship. It's a very guarded relationship, which just increased costs. Um, taking a look at mass customization, how can it reduce technical rigidity? So again, uh, the tech, you know, I think a lot of people, when they took a, take a look at an object, uh, let's take a vehicle. Uh, you know, we're going to design a vehicle and that's it. And, and we're going to design it. But if we take a look at mass customization and we look at building blocks, so we take a look at the interior of the vehicle. Let's customize the interior. Do you want an AM radio, an FM radio? Do you want a satellite play? Um, you know, what color of interior do you want? Do you want a cloth interior, leather interior? Uh, then we can go to the engine selection. So I think configurators are going to become more and more in vogue as people want that customized, personalized solution. And technology is going to have to come to play with that along with artificial intelligence. Uh, so, you know, you're not going to put uh, a V8 engine with a steel wheel uh, on your vehicle with non-pneumatic uh, tires. So that configuration isn't going to work. So, you know, we're going to have AI in there to kind of coach uh, people. We saw Amazon kind of do that <coughs> in the early stages. You order something online, <coughs> they would automatically come up and say, hey, if you like this, you might be interested in this or you should consider buying this. So, uh, you know, as that mass customization comes into play, you know, technology has to become very agile. And that really takes us back to where, you know, automation, programming, automation, uh, how quickly can we do it? Because if I have to provide an array of options uh, to the client, you know, I, I won't have enough warehouse space. So, you know, I need to figure out how to do it very, very quickly. Um, 
you know, I, I can think back even at Allen Bradley, it, it was un, not uncommon on motor control centers because of all the different motor curves out there that we would probably have active half a billion uh, bills of material at any given time, uh, which then made the planning process that much more complicated in our ERP. So we have to get innovative. So uh, the technical rigidity is going to disappear. Yeah. Uh, you know, people saying, you got to do it this way because that's what the system says versus you want to know something, make your system comply to what my customer wants. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. It needs to disappear. And I think that that is the differentiator between, um, if I put it on the perspective of engineering, uh, uh, the old way to engineer things and the new way to engineer things. Uh, we need our engineers to be more visionaries and, and to dream more than ever before. Because if they dream more and they build in that flexibility within their processes and their products, then that uh, rigidity disappears. It has to disappear. I think people, um, to your point, Mario, where some items are not lasting that, that much longer anymore, uh, you know, I don't want to invest a, a big deal of resources into a product that I'm not sure is going to last. Um, but I might be willing to go through the same trend of products. I just don't want this one. I, I, I want the next generation or a different version of it. And you won't have that many manufacturers are there able to do it. It's going to come back to the same manufacturers that have the technology and the resources available. They, they have to break it. They have to kill it. And they have to kill it at every level of the organization, not only technical rigidity, from the mechanical perspective, that piece of equipment, that robot doing it, but the technical rigidity on how people think their businesses and how people plan and execute their businesses, how they deal with their customers, how they understand customer requirements, what is critical to the customer, and how they're willing to accept the inputs of that customer on continuous basis. Because they feel that the customer gave me this, this input today, and I set up a process based on that, but they forget that customers' needs change, and change very fast nowadays. So how fast they can change to those customer requirements, how often they check, they do a temperature check with their customer to ensure that they are proactively reacting to those customer needs. I also think that there's a there's a real challenge and a concern about people looking for innovation within their in industry silo. Um, and I think, you know, Mary, you've done a great role with plant of exposing people to innovations happening in dissimilar industries than the reader perhaps is glancing at. Uh, I think there's a lot of innovation out there uh, just by looking at a different industry sector. I, I can think back in automotive, uh, we spent a lot of time looking at the toy industry because the toy industry were masters at eliminating fasteners. Fasteners were unsafe for young kids. So they got into Velcro, they got into snap together technologies, which was you know innovative for automotive, but was a standard practice uh, within you know, the the, uh, the the toy industry. Uh, we recently visited a dairy farm in, in Quebec and I grew up on a dairy farm and I was limited to only being able to, to venture 12 hours away uh, from the farm because I had to go back and milk the cows. 
you know, we walked into this farm and, and here the farmer was, he basically says, I can get up whenever I want and go to work as long as I have access to my smartphone because I have robotic milkers and, you know, I'm milking 500 cows, one person milking 500 cows, you know, no longer restricted. He says, I can travel, you know, to Montreal. He was in Quebec City. He says, I can travel as long as I have access to my phone. I'm there. And we happened to wander through and he was running John Deere equipment. And he says, you know, I, uh, we were at harvest time and he said, you know, I laid the map on my GPS when I planted this field. And he says, so now when I come to spray, he says, I just bring up that map. My tractor's following the map, follows exactly the same pattern, knows where the rocks are, where it knows where the obstacles are. And now here I am in my combine harvesting the corn. And he says, in reality, I don't even need to be in my combine. So as much as we talk about autonomous vehicles, here you got somebody else saying, it's already there. It's just, you know, are they leveraging it? So I really, really, you know, always implore industries. And that's one of the richness that we have in our practices because we get to see such diverse industries. A big part of our job is just cross-pollinating. You know, the food industry is doing this. This could apply over here, you know, even though, uh, you know, in the food industry, we're always concerned about cross-contamination. But cross-contamination is a real peril in many other, even machining environments. Yeah. So, you know what? Why are you reinventing the wheel? Go over there, steal with pride, and put it in place. So I think it's very important about how we take a look at, you know, that technology rigidity. One last topic I'd like to cover is robots. Uh, can you speak about how robots are changing the factory of the future? So, I, you know, I think it's interesting that per capita, Toyota has almost three times as many robots as General Motors in spite of how people-centric Toyota constantly communicates. Now, when we go through uh, our environment, you know, we always talk to our clients about a different 5S, not the 5S of workplace organization, but have you taken a look at a process and have you made five distinct attempts to simplify? And once you have simplified it, then automate it. And I think robots are wonderful. They don't get tired. They don't complain. They don't get hungry. They don't have to go for a pee. So repetitive, mundane pro processes are absolutely conducive to robots. I think we're going to see more robots. And as robot technology gets smarter with the use of AI in combination with vision systems, you know, we can take that most precious commodity, which is our people, and we can use their brains, not for repetitive tasks, but on innovation yeah. and on that customization and tweaking to uh, that value proposition for our customer. At the end of the day, we can have the technology. You can have the product, but the people that you have and the culture that you have created is going to be your strategic differentiator. Uh, that is what's going to bring people back to your business and bring people back to your service or your product. So I, I love robots. Uh, you know, I think anything that's dangerous, uh, you know, should be automatically automated. I, I constantly walk through the plants and we grab the leaders and I say, I need you to take a look at every process and at every employee and envision your child there. 
And if that is where, if that is a job that you would want your child to grow up and grow into and then do for their entire career until they retire, good for you. If not, figure out how to automate it. And that usually is, is a pretty big uh, awakening to a lot of the leaders that we work with because they just say, ah, it's just easy to throw a body there, but then it becomes one of those permanent temporary fixes. We put a body there, they stay there. And before we know it, that person's been doing that job for 30 years. And what a waste of a precious mind and a precious soul where we could have used them for innovation. So yeah, I think robots are, are there. I, I, I don't think people are using robots enough, uh, but I think you know I'm starting to see the cost of pick and place robots dramatically coming down in price where they're not inhibitive. Uh, and, but the other side is that the pro the programming of these robots is now becoming so easy that I don't have to add another engineer. I mean, I can basically bolt a robot, grab the end of the arm, and I can basically run it through the motions manually as if I would do it. And the pro robot is now programmed and can now take over from where after I've done the, the teaching. Now, I may teach it an incorrect process, shame on me, but at least it hasn't now required me to be attached to that process as a human being. Yeah, I think that the use of robots is going to put a big gap between organizations that are focused on producing internally within their countries, within their limits, and those ones that are had made the decision to produce overseas, chasing that lower cost of labor. Uh, and we have had it with customers where they know that they can bring more automation and robots to their uh, plants in places like Mexico, for example. But it goes back to, you know what, it's cheaper to hire five, 10 more people than dealing with bringing the robot and bringing the engineers and so on. So I think that is going to create a very, very big gap and the modern, more industrialized countries are going to be farther ahead than the, the second, third world countries where they still rely very much on manual labor. Unfortunately, because they're seeing that the contribution of their employees goes just to the extent of their hands and they don't realize that the real contribution is on their brains. Yeah, but, it, and again, I think it's gonna come back to cultural acceptance of, of robotics. I mean, uh, if we take a look at the hospitality industry, I mean, you know, we're reading about robots making your cocktails or robots making your hamburger. Um, and me personally, I'm not ready for that yet. I, I still like having a chef that that's putting a little touch of, of passion and love into that dish that they're preparing to me. I just don't need a cold, sterile and predictable at this point, but you know, probably my, my attitudes will change over time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. Now, now, to your point, you, you mentioned Toyota and robots. Uh, I believe the automotive industry has sort of been at the forefront of using robots to create uh, vehicles. And now it's almost some uh, more boutique manufacturers say, oh, the vehicle is handmade and that's sort of gotten a cachet. However, if you look at it, the, the robot doesn't make mistakes, which could be the reason why we went to robots from people building a lot of the vehicles is because, and the reliability has increased. It has, uh, and it, it has taken the jack. I think it's taken a lot of the mundane work. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you go into predominantly an in automotive OEMs, 
you know, uh, to weld a body, there are literally thousands and thousands of spot welds that are applied uh, to do repeatable and predictable processes with a human being would be enormous. I mean, I, I don't think anybody could remind it, even if you used wearables. Um, so then I think distinctly the option is to use robots to do predictability. But, you know, I, I want to kind of add to this, Mario, that what we're seeing uh, and particularly in Quebec, they're having such a hard time getting operators and, and they have exhausted, you know, for, foreign worker uh, access that they out of desperation have had to go to automation and robotics. And so, it, it, and, and we're not quite seeing that yet here in Ontario, at least with the companies that were there, but I mean, in Quebec, I mean, their innovation on robots for doing very simplistic tasks is being engaged. So they're actually using robots, even if that robot is only going to do a task for an hour because they just don't have people available to do that. So that that flexibility in, in a robot is changing. It's, it's becoming mobile. It's, it's not no longer something that's bolted into a floor in the middle of a cell. It's like, mm -hmm. let's put it on wheels. It's going to do pick and place, boom, put it in this machine, program it here, and that's replacing a, a robot to take the part out of the machine and put it into a box. So I think that that robotic is going to become a huge assist to mankind. And yes, like anything else, whether it was barcode, whether it was EDI, RF, robotics has, in our cases, uh, the genesis of birth and automotive, it is quickly moving into other industry sectors. Yeah, speaking of warehousing. Warehousing is big, so you know, printed circuit boards. I mean, pick and place is 50,000 pieces a, a minute. I mean, it, it's, it's blinding fast. I mean, that is robotic, that is automation. So, you know, I, yes, we tend to focus on automotive, but when you take a look at other industry sectors, absolutely, the accuracy is there. Uh, you know, we were just in a, I was just in a printed circuit board plant on surface now, and they were, they were averaging 50,000 places, placements a minute within a half a micron accuracy. I mean, think about it. I mean, half a micron is like a third of a diameter of a human hair. And that machine is doing it time and time again. Now, do you see a time when robots are going to be programming other robots? Absolutely. Yes. Where I, I'm seeing, I, I, I've got little visions of it, uh, you know, in Japan, uh, you know, I know that a feeder cell to the main assembly line, uh, if you want to go and access that plant, uh, that feeder cell, you basically have to put a blip in the schedule three weeks in advance. Uh, there are robots in there that are doing dye changes. They're doing the color changes. They're replenishing the raw, raw materials and they're using AGVs after the parts are stacked uh, to transport it and sequence it into the assembly line. And you got to realize all these parts are made in a lot size of one. They're, they're handling 33 different colors and there's no rhyme or reason that's being done on demand as the VINs are being launched out of the sequencer after the paint shop in the assembly plant. So it totally lights out manufacturing, definitely there. Um, I don't think the Unfortunately, at this time, lights out manufacturing has a start and a stop. So I think that you know people are scaling up their plants, lights out, 
to run from, let's say 11 o'clock at night until seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, we have worked on some exercises where we can turn the lights off at five o'clock Friday afternoon and know that the plant should be able to run unattended until seven o'clock Monday morning. But then we have to come in, we have to go through the dye changes, we have to go through <clears throat> finished goods takeaway, material replenishment. So we're not totally there, but definitely robots are going to be programming robots. And you have to include in that equation the use of your smart technology like your cell phone. So like that dairy farmer, you know, he's getting a message. He can be wherever and it's saying, this cow is out of temperature range. What do you want to do? And he can look at it, analyze it and say, you know what? I think the cow, you know, needs to be attended by a vet. Divert it to go into this pen and the That's machines right. are automatically doing it for him. He doesn't have to be in the barn. Or notify the vet because yep. the machine does it. Yeah. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, do you have anything you think we might have missed? Um, no, I, I think that we covered quite a bit on this session. Um, I just probably want to add that we were talking to one of our nephews, which is studying um, uh, nanotechnology, as a matter of fact, uh, nano engineering. Engineer in Waterloo, and I was curious to pick, you know, where the brains of these uh, uh, future engineers are and manufacturing of the future. And their biggest concern was, you know, how fast are people going to adopt these technologies? Uh, they were saying, you know, if we reflect the auto industry, even though it became mass production, it has taken around 100 years plus uh, to be widely adopted across the world, but yet you look at your smartphones and it's been like 20. Yeah. So how fast are the new technologies coming? And I think their concern was more on how fast we will have to come up with these new technologies uh, to satisfy these human beings that suddenly are absorbing new technologies faster than, than beings were respecting themselves. So uh, I think that um, something to add is on reflecting that, you know, how, how far are we going to go, how fast, and, and how fast are we going to be able to consume this? And I think the other thing that we've seen is how fast can you flex to a new technology? It's like, uh, like ourselves, Mario, we, we, we have just recently developed and deployed e-learning, and we've had to pick a very secure platform, both for our customers and ourselves, on security and IP. And my first question you know, to our IT team was, how long is this technology going to last before uh, something new comes out? Uh, and, and their response was, we really don't know. Uh, I know we redid our website recently. You know, We had spent three months creating the old website. I was not able to really transition anything from the old website to the new website uh, technology. I have to basically start from zeros, which is a huge investment. And I think that, you know, uh, as we take a look at the, um, the emergence of technologies is how are organizations going to be able to manage it as an evolutionary process versus a revolutionary process where they basically have to get rid of the old and put something brand spanking new in. And I think that is going to be another real resistance to change as people move towards that horizon that kind of portrays that uh, factory of the future. 
Once again, thank you, Mariella and Richard, for coming on the show today. That was a lot of great information and insight. Thank you, Mario. Always an honor to be able to help you. It was our pleasure. And on a side note, as many of you may already know, Richard is a regular contributor to Plant Magazine. Uh, be sure to read his articles at plant.ca. Thank you for joining us again on Plant Talk. See you next time. Thanks.